We are It's More Than Just a Chant. We are inspirational creators, difference makers, world changers, and we are one community. Join alums Jared and Ross as they uncover stories of Penn Staters and their unique professional and personal journeys. We are Penn State, and this is Lion Legacy. All right, episode 10 of Lion Legacy. Ross, we are in double digits, my friend. Look at us. Who knew? Who knew? Here we are. Exciting times. And interestingly enough, we've had some listener response. I think people have been quite intrigued around Andrew Moses meeting his wife at Penn State, Andrew Weinert meeting his wife, and then you meeting Jess at Penn State. And yep, uh, yep. love getting a story from Lee McGann about meeting her husband at Penn State as well. Martin and Lee actually became close friends in 1972. They met at Mount Alto. I love this story. Martin moved up to State College before Lee did, and Lee joined him. They were friends, but Lee joined him a year later. And chivalry is not dead, my friends. Martin actually helped her move in. They went out for hoagies, and then the rest is history. And they actually now live in State College for over 30 years. Lee is a retired State College area school district teacher. Martin actually teaches at Penn State in the Department of Plant Science. And this is perfect, right? Because we just had Jen Wall on last week talking about education and the appreciation that we have for educators. So thank you both, Lee and Martin. And they actually have three kids, all Penn Staters. Aaron, Kate, Sean, very nice. And talk about a, a true lion legacy. So just love that story. Thanks to Lee for, for sending that in. And if anyone else has a great Penn State love story, who doesn't love a Penn State love story, you can email us at roar, R-O-A-R, at lionlegacypodcast.com. Jared, I love it. Even though it's uh, Valentine's Day was a little while ago, we're still we're telling the love stories. Penn State, among other things, you go there, you go for an education, you meet your best friends, and who knows, you'll meet the love of your life. There's just there's stories out there, you know, aplenty. I love it. I love it. So also another thing that wasn't all that long ago was daylight savings time. It happens in November and March. We turn the clocks, you know, fortunately we sprung ahead in the middle of March and I, I was hoping my kids wouldn't wake up terribly early that Sunday morning. They did not. Thank goodness. Lucky for me and my wife. But why am I telling you this? Because this week's guests, that's plural guests, RT Custer and Tyler Wolf, who are the co-founders of Vortic Watches. They are buddies from their Penn State days. They tell the story about how they went from Penn State and became business partners uh, what the difference is in their watches and how they're built in America. Uh, they also tell, touch upon a little story about a, they got in some hot water in a legal battle with a major corporation. And so they're going to comment on that. And so a couple firsts here. First time we've had two guests on at the same time. First time that we've had uh, guests on that are in the consumer goods world. You know, I aspire to to get some fancy watches someday. For now, my my thirty dollars Timex that I get from Target will do the job. It was a good conversation, and we really enjoyed speaking with them. 
and so you'll have to bear with us this episode because we had two guests was a little bit longer, but it was certainly worth it. And it will definitely be worth your time. All right. Let's welcome two Penn Staters, R.T. Custer, 2014 graduate, industrial engineering with two minors in engineering leadership development and engineering entrepreneurship. It's a bit of a mouthful right there. And Tyler Wolf, mathematics major turned machinist. Amazingly, these two gents co-founded Vortec Watches, a vintage watch restoration company while at Penn State. RT serves as CEO and Tyler, CMO, Chief Machinist Officer. Awesome title, by the way. RT, Tyler, <laughs> welcome to Lion Legacy. Thank you. Hey, Thank you guys on, for man? having us. Perfect. Now, us bef before I let Ross ask that first question, I just got to say, RT Custer seems like the perfect name for someone who works at a vintage watch restoration company. Appreciate that. I always say I'm, I'm just an engineer because watchmaking is a highly specialized craft that is beyond anything that we could have learned in our type of schooling. But yeah, I think both of our last names are really strong American names. <laughs> so I think we definitely have that going for us for sure. Excellent. Hey guys, thanks for, for joining us here today. High level entrepreneurship is something that I feel like is hot these days, right? Or at least for a few years, you know, kind of our generation really lo loves that idea of the, uh, of the, the startup and the hustle. You hear about all the latest apps, software technology being created, but you guys went in a little bit of a different direction. Give us a brief history about how you came up with the idea for Vortic Watches and the journey to where you are today. So Tyler and I became friends at, at school at Penn State through an organization called College Works Painting. And I don't know if you guys were ever in one of the auditoriums or in the forum and these random people would come in and they'd pass out slips and be like, hey, if you want to join this multi-level marketing company and paint houses for the summer, you can totally do that. We both fell for that in a good way. And then we both were golfers. And so one day after class, I think on the golf course, we were just talking about watches. And we had the conversation because Tyler was just basically saying something about his watch not fitting correctly. Like it was just a little bit too loose, but if he went to the next hole in the watch, it would be a little too tight. And then I thought that was interesting because I, I personally can't wear a watch while I play golf. It's kind of annoying. It's right there on my wrist and no matter how tight or loose it is, it just didn't work. And so we got into this conversation of, I wonder if we could create a watch that if you would twist the bezel or twist some kind of knob on it, it would uh, make the watch fit better. Like it would have small adjustments in the wristband and the wristband would tighten kind of like the BOA technology you see on snowboard boots and golf mm -hmm. shoes. Now that was the concept that we had on the golf course. And we fleshed it out a little bit on the course. We pitched it in one of our entrepreneurship classes and just got a lot of really good feedback. And that idea we call twist to fit. And we actually own a United States patent on that idea, but it doesn't exist. We never ended up making the product. And we might someday, but that's where Vortic comes from. It's Vortex and TikTok. That's where Vortic comes from was this watch that you could somehow adjust the band to make the perfect fit standard. But yeah, to pick up where T left off, starting that first company, what happened is we we started a Kickstarter 
for what we're doing now. We, we struck out looking for funding and looking for investors because we just re didn't really know how to put together a pitch. So we decided we could put together a pocket watch and 3D printing because our team was really involved with the 3D printing program at Penn State and make something really cool, make some cash and then go back to our original idea. And we got such a strong response on Kickstarter that we ended up pursuing our current idea, converting pocket watches into wristwatches as our full-time thing. Yeah, I, I didn't even appreciate that until I, I was doing a little bit more research on the, on the company. And on the surface, I, I had never heard a, of a watch company that did just that. I just figured, oh, it's, you guys make watches, right? I was fascinated by that whole idea with taking that old pocket watch customizing each and every one. And we're going to get a little bit more into that in a, in a few minutes, but it really is a, a novel idea. So I, I give you guys all the credit for that. Thank you. Appreciate that. So talk a little bit about this combination of modern technology combined with the vintage watches. When you go to your website, the first thing that you see is America wasn't assembled, it was built. <laughs> yeah. So we came up with that tagline pretty early on in the company and at, at first, most of our marketing had to do with American made because we are still today and definitely back in, in 2014, when we did the Kickstarter, one of the only American watch companies, and especially one of a very small group of companies that actually makes and builds watches here. There's a lot of companies, and you guys know this from other industries that say American made, but really the parts are brought in from other countries and it's assembled in America. And so we wanted to just really state with a strong way that this is truly made in America. And so that's why we say America wasn't assembled, it was built. We build watches one at a time, 100% or as close to it as possible made in USA. And where are you actually sourcing the, the vintage watch? Where's that coming from? Yeah. So a lot of people don't know this, but about a hundred years ago, there were uh, about 10, 10 major watch companies. We called them the great American watch companies. And those companies between about the mid 1800s and mid 1900s, those companies made over a hundred million pocket watches in the United States. And just like any industry, there was a few large ones. The largest one was Elgin from Elgin, Illinois, just outside Chicago. And Elgin, for instance, made 55 million movements in their about 100 years of existence. Long story short, most of those pocket watches are in gold or silver cases. And so when you see gold prices and silver prices go up like they did in 08, 09, and they are right now, people scrap the pocket watches, mostly pawn shops, are melting down the gold and silver. And the inside, what we call the movement, it's all the guts, the gears and springs and face of the watch and the hands. Those are scrap or just trash to these gold scrappers. And so we try to save as many as we can. So we buy from estate sales, pawn shops, just individuals directly. And we just want the guts. We just want the movement is what we call it. But that's where most of them come from. And then what's the process once you have that vintage watch? So we, first of all, we restore the movement. I mean, these are probably average of 100, 110 years old, some of them. And so watchmakers, true watchmakers, disassemble those movements, clean them, oil them, and reassemble them and restore it. It's not just like a, a cleaning or a repair of a modern watch. It's a full restoration of these movements. Once that's done, then Tyler's team takes over and we basically invented a process and, uh, and system 
that is a case, we just call it the case that the, uh, the pocket watch movement sits in. And so we make the case, the crown, the strap, all the outside components to change that pocket watch movement now into a wristwatch. And then we have another team that actually builds the watch. They take all the parts that, that Tyler manufactures and, and put it together one watch at a time. Now, I'm curious, do you guys, and I was trying to search through your website to see if I could find this answer before I, I brought it up, but do you guys use actual batteries or do you guys use the movement for, I guess, what they call kinetic? Yeah, so there's no batteries in anything that, that we make. Um, pocket watches, all the movements we're using were actually made 100 years ago, so they didn't have batteries in them yet. Everything is powered by springs and gears, so you have to physically wind the watch to make okay. it go. Got it. So that's like the third option, right? You have the battery powered kinetic, which winds by movement. And then, then yeah, the... what you're referring to is an automatic uh, mechanical watch. There you this go. is a manual. We make manual wind mechanical watches. Very cool. Thank you for that. Yeah. Yeah. And from the, the process, I'm just curious, how long does it take once you ha get this watch in your, your hands to actually build it to what we see today on the website? So Right now for any given project, and, and one thing we didn't mention is that people send us family heirloom pocket watches. And so in that example, if it's a one-off, it's your grandfather's pocket watch, you mail it to us, as long as it fits our specs, which is about 50% chance that you have something that we can turn into a wristwatch. We quote anywhere from eight to 12 weeks worth of work. Obviously, we're not just working on just your watch that whole time. We have probably a hundred different watches in the queue at any time. But the, the bulk of the process is that restoration with the watchmaker. It takes probably a day of time to go through a watch properly and fully restore it. But what takes a lot of time is the testing and quality assurance, just to make sure you did it all right and that you adjusted it. All of these movements can be adjusted to tell time uh, more accurately. And, and it takes a lot of time to test for those things. And so the watchmakers, once they restore it, they put it through about a week of testing and just making sure everything's smooth. And then once we get it, before we even put it in a watch, we spend a few days testing it and make sure it's, it's still accurate. And then once we assemble all of the parts and components turning a wristwatch, then we test it for at least a week to still, again, make sure it's working and keeping time because these are one of a kind pieces of art that happen to be watches but they are watches, so they have to keep time. You, you want them to actually keep time on your wrist all day. So that's the number one objective for us is build something amazing and, and of high quality, but it has to keep time. <laughs> so that's why it takes so long. Makes sense. So you mentioned that every watch, you know, is so unique. You alluded a, a few minutes ago to that you get some from estate sales or whatever your sources are to get those pocket watches. Some come from individuals who might have an heirloom. Are there any like particular stories of one that stick out as like an interesting background as to where a pocket watch came from? Any of them owned by a famous person or just something that really struck you as being even more unique than the others? We've had a few that that came through that were really neat. One gentleman from Los Angeles sent us his, I think it was his grandfather's, it might've been his great grandfather's pocket watch. And it was engraved on the back and it said, thank you for 50 years of service to the city of LA. And we did some research and we just, we asked this guy about who his grandfather was. 
And off the top of my head, I don't remember his last name, but he was a real estate developer and he built hundreds of buildings and financed hundreds of buildings in LA and literally helped build that city in the early 1900s. Um, and this guy got this pocket watch just in an estate, probably didn't know much about it, but he told us he never wore it and now he can wear it anytime he wants. Now it's on his wrist. And we obviously took that pocket watch case, you know, it was solid gold engraved and all that stuff. And we sent that back to him with his now finished wristwatch and even put it in the box so he can keep it all together. There's definitely lots of really cool stories. And a lot of people, they have no idea. They got it, it just passed down to them. It was in a drawer and they know it's somebody in their families, but there's nothing else to do with it. Right. Very cool. So just shifting a little bit, you guys are based in Fort Collins, Colorado. How did you guys end up there? It's actually a pretty funny story. RT took a job with Walmart corporate in one town over from here, right out of college. And I was living in Philly at the time. This was the time that we were making the pivot to, to launching the current product as opposed to the twist of fit product that RT mentioned earlier. And he came to Fort Collins because it was Fort Collins or Arkansas. So he chose Fort Collins and it was as simple as he called me and was just like, Hey, do you want to come live in my basement and launch the Kickstarter and start this company? And I was living in Philly at the time. And I said, yeah, that sounds awesome. Sounds like exactly what I want to do. <laughs> <laughs> Excellent. So I'm going to yeah. go, go a little deeper there. So speaking of Colorado, so I actually visited Denver. My wife and I came out there for the first time two summers ago, uh, summer of 19. We visited a friend of ours who's also a friend of Jared's. Shout out to Abby Oppenheim. She's also a fellow Penn Stater. And a true highlight for that trip was being able to see a show at Red Rocks Amphitheater. I saw that you guys partnered up with Red Rocks, which let me back up for a step. Red Rocks, for those that don't know, is a famous amphitheater just outside of Denver. It is a, a music venue that is literally carved into the side of a mountain. The sound, you have the natural acoustics, which are unbelievable, amazing views. It's just really, for any mu music fan, it's a must-see, must-go uh, for anybody when it's safe to go to concerts again. So I have to preface all that. And so you guys partnered up with the Red Rocks to make custom-built watches for their artists who were inducted into their Hall of Fame. Tell us a little bit about how that partnership came about. Yeah, so it was actually just an event that RT and I had set a booth up at down in Denver. We were selling watches pretty early on. What was this, 2016-ish? Yeah, maybe 2017, yeah. And Brian, the gentleman who is in charge of sponsorships for the Red Rocks Amphitheater, stopped by our booth and basically just immediately said, this shouts Colorado, this shouts the Red Rocks brand. I'd love to talk more about an idea that I have. And essentially his idea was to give watches to the artists that Red Rocks decided to induct into their personal hall of fame. And obviously I jumped at the opportunity and hounded this guy afterwards <laughs> to make sure that we got this partnership. And it's really been amazing. We get to meet a few really cool artists and go to a lot of Red Rock shows. Like you said, it's a pretty special place. And we, we make watches for extremely famous artists. You know, the first one that comes in my head is Jackson Brown, but you know, we got to meet Steve Miller and Tyler and I went to a few other shows like Sound Tribe that they all got watches. And, you know, it's been, it's been a good test of what we can do as far as like marketing partnerships go. 
Excellent. Good for you guys. So your watches have certainly attracted quite the attention. And there's a little bit of a David versus Goliath story here with uh, Swatch. Yeah. So I guess background that, and that's a very long story. So I'll try to keep it short, <laughs> but the Swatch group is the world's largest watch conglomerate. They're a $10 billion a year organization. They have, I think last count, like 13 or 14,000 employees. They own the most famous brand that they own is Omega. You guys have probably heard of that. And then obviously they own Swatch the, on Omega. They have high end, right. And then Swatch on the really low end. And everything in between, I think they have 26 brands in their portfolio, mostly watch companies. And one of the brands, one of the trademarks that they own is a company called Hamilton. And the Hamilton watch company was founded in the late 1800s in Lancaster, Pennsylvania, and was a pocket watch manufacturer. And so they made pocket watches in Pennsylvania from the late 1800s until 1967, um, when they went under. And then in 1972, the brand and trademark was purchased by a holding company, which ended up becoming owned by the Swatch Group. And they own the trademark to the word Hamilton as it pertains to watches. We salvage and restore antique American pocket watches and turn them into wrist watches. And some of those pocket watches happen to be Hamilton pocket watches. Obviously, we like restoring those Hamilton ones because we're from Pennsylvania. So that's really cool. My dad lives in Hamilton Park in Lancaster now you know, there's a huge connection there. And we started making these watches on our Kickstarter. We had one, we called it the Lancaster a Hamilton pocket watch turned into a wristwatch. And after our Kickstarter, we started getting going. We bought an ad in watch time magazine, which is the largest wristwatch magazine in the U S and we featured a Lancaster model watch. So it said Hamilton on the face of the watch, because that's the original face of the pocket watch. And then it's had a huge Vortec logo in the bottom that said, you know, what we do. Old pocket watch turned into wristwatch. We got a cease and desist right after that. And we thought it was a mistake because, you know, of what we're doing. And we were just confused. Maybe they were confused. And across the next five years, we fought the world's largest watch company back and forth and back and forth with lots of different attorneys and legal stuff and all that. It became an official federal lawsuit in July of 2017. And then we went to trial because we were always advised, you know, we're not doing anything wrong. We should really try to protect ourselves if we can. And we took them all the way to trial. And in February of 2020, I sat next to a federal judge in New York City and told our story that we're telling you guys and just said everything that we do. And then on September 11th of 2020, we got the news. We just got an email from our attorney that said we won. Tyler and I were playing golf that day. <laughs> First day we took off in years playing golf. So it was ironic and funny. Um, and yeah, we, we won. And I, I wish that was a period and the end of the story. But unfortunately, they almost immediately appealed. And so now we're in the appeals court, still federal lawsuit they're appealing it and we're going to keep fighting because we won on all counts. The judge literally said case closed. Keep fighting the good fight, gents. Keep fighting. <laughs> I mean, we're, in, we're, it, it's, it's too late now. We got to keep going anyway, but we're too far in. <laughs> exactly. And, and in some ways, right, that just validates what you're doing is, is amazing for this to be on the radar of the Swatch company. 
you know, and for them to take action, I think that speaks volumes to what you've created. So congrats there. Thanks. Yeah, I, a- I like that way of looking at it. <laughs> Go ahead. <Dan. laughs> I was going to say it's a compliment. I wish we didn't get. Exactly. <laughs> right. That is right. true. <laughs> yeah. That's very, a good way to true. say it. So yeah. shifting to a little bit more of a positive note, even though you guys weren't on Shark Tank, the shark Kevin O'Leary, who is a big watch connoisseur, as you know, is also a big fan of yours. How did that all come about? It's so awesome to put your product in front of a billionaire and they think it's one of the coolest things they've ever seen. He, he made a video of it and the watch that he was doing like a watch review thing with one of his friends and the watch before ours, as they were going through his collection was worth over a million dollars for that one watch, you know? And then he comes to ours and he doesn't even say how much ours cost, which ours are, are 2000 to 10,000. So cheap for someone like that. Um, and he just spends like five minutes saying how awesome our watches are. And, and again, trying to make a long t- story short here, I, I have a, a YouTube show that I do with uh, my other friend, Tyler, um, and it's called Products Worth Talking About. And we just try to connect like you guys do with people that started companies. And we talk about consumer products and physical products sold online. That's my passion is consumer goods and especially the marketing of it. And we interviewed this guy, Anthony, who started MC Squares. And Anthony basically tried to make a new version of a sticky note. It's kind of like a whiteboard on a sticky note. So it's a reusable sticky note. And he pitched that on the Shark Tank and got a deal from Kevin. And basically he sent me an email and he said, hey, I'd like to give Kevin O'Leary a watch as a gift to thank him for investing in my company on Shark Tank. And we were like, yes, (laughs) how do we do this? And so we had 24 hours to get the watch to uh, Vegas for the filming of the new season. He was staying at the Venetian, I think. And so it's okay, if you want to do this, we need a watch right now. It's got to have a red strap because he only buys watches with red straps. And so we found that the closest to red we had of leather, put it all together, threw a handwritten note in there and just overnight it to the Venetian. And then we didn't hear anything for two months. So we thought it's gone. Who knows? The the front desk at the Venetian was like, oh, thanks for this watch. Great. Cool stuff. And then all of a sudden it's on Shark Tank on his wrist. So really, really cool. That's that's a really cool story. And you're right. It's it's good to get it in the hands of somebody that appreciates it. Um, And we also love companies that give back to great causes. Your company has done some great things with the military edition and the Veterans Watchmaker Initiative. So the military edition uses movements made by the Hamilton Watch Company uh, that were used in World War II, one of the best watches that Hamilton ever produced. Um, And these are a 24-hour dial, so they have military time, just generally a really neat story and a really cool old watch. And we were able to get our hands on a fair amount of these. And... I don't really remember exactly how this idea formed, but when we saw these movements, we were going to make a slightly modified version of our regular cases for these movements, but we just thought they were so cool that this thing needs its entirely own product. And we think people are going to be super into this. So we started with the story, with the military story, with the, the Hamilton watches. And then as we started designing it, it was just super cool. Yeah. So one of the biggest problems in the watch industry, and honestly, in America right now, is that the skilled trade gap 
and there are not very many people, especially young people, getting into the skilled trades. And, and when people say skilled trades now, it's plumbers, electricians, those kind of things. But for us in our industry, it's the watchmakers. And to give this perspective, a watchmaker that we need, someone who can restore a hundred year old pocket watch is kind of like, if you think of the car industry and mechanics, you got Jiffy Lubes and stuff all over the country and there's mechanics everywhere, but there's probably four humans in America that know how to fully restore a Model A, right? Like it's so specific, so niche. Where do you get the parts? You have to make half the parts probably. That's the kind of person in the watch industry that we need as a watchmaker, someone who can take something a hundred years old and bring it back to life. And there's not very many schools that teach watchmaking. And there's less and less every year because it's just not a popular thing. Kids don't grow up and think they can be a watchmaker. It's just not a common thing you think about. But there's one school that we found out about and somebody, I, I think we were talking about the military edition watch with someone and they were like, oh, you should meet these guys. This guy's name is Sam and he runs this organization called the Veterans Watchmaker Initiative. And they teach U.S. military vets how to become watchmakers. And when somebody said that to me, I was like, wow, just like the Red Rocks thing, match made in heaven from a partnership standpoint, they teach military vets how to become watchmakers. They're solving the biggest problem in our industry by creating more watchmakers and obviously solving a big problem, which is like getting veterans work and, and highly skilled labor. And so we went out to visit them just amazing people, as you can imagine, that run this nonprofit. And we decided to donate $500 from the sale of every military edition watch we sell to the school. And then we also recently partnered with them where now the students that are graduating, they just graduated their first large class, are doing the restoration on these pocket watches so that we can turn them into wristwatches. And so now it's an even more like deeper partnership there. But yeah, in 2019, we donated 25,000. Last year, we donated 50,000. I don't know if we'll be able to double that again. Maybe if we get some support from other people or something like that, we can raise more money. But to say they're a good cause is not even close. They are the perfect cause for us to support for the military edition and just our whole company. Excellent. Uh, that's super admirable and, and kudos to you guys. I want to get back to the, the idea of entrepreneurship for a moment. I feel like we all tend to to focus on the successful aspects of entrepreneurs, but you know it's certainly a true journey. I imagine you guys have some tough days, right? It's not all glory, you know, the glory that that it might people might read about. What have you learned from the tough times as you've gone through building up the company, and, and what's your message to somebody maybe coming out of college that has the, an idea for starting up their own business? We realized the other day. Uh, we were hanging out with some friends and we've been doing this for a decade. Like between the idea on the golf course to now has been 10 years. Um, and that is a long time, but it's even more significant to us because this is our entire adult life. We left college and started this company and we're still running it. Um, and yeah, we've seen some hard stuff. I, I, I'd say that some of the biggest lessons that I've learned are around employees and growing a team. And just treating people and being a good leader, not being a boss, not being a manager, like showing up and being a good example to them. And especially people that, that work for you for years, take care of those people because they're invaluable. A lot of people 
don't work for a company for more than six months now. So if somebody works for you for two years, how do you keep them there? We've lost a lot of good people by just not taking care of them the way we might have or should have. And so we do a lot better at that now. <laughs> and yeah, the piece of advice that I always share is um, it ties back into lawsuit and some of those things. And it's don't be afraid to ask for help. And I know for me, I'm guilty all the time of either being stubborn and thinking like, I got this, I can figure it out. I don't want to inconvenience someone by asking them for help. But the times that, that we've hit a wall and had to ask for help are all like inflection points in the company when we look back on it. For instance, in the lawsuit, we had an attorney that I didn't think was representing us well. And he was advising us that maybe we just should file for bankruptcy and walk away. And he was giving up. Our attorney was giving up on us. And so I asked for help. And we, we got a new attorney and this new attorney happened to be one of the best in the world at, at what he does. And we won a huge result from that, but just simply from us not giving up and then being willing to ask for help. All right. So, yeah, this is a tough question for me because, um, like RT alluded to, we've, it's really been a roller coaster. There have been some really dark, difficult times taking short-term loans to make payroll, differences between RT and myself that have taken a long time to work through to get to the point where we're at now. So I think if I were to give anybody advice, they go together. One is patience. Um, there's nothing that you can do to replace time. As punny as that might sound, owning a watch company. <laughs> um, it's really easy. Like you said, entrepreneurship has become this hot thing. We look up to our heroes have become Elon Musk and Jeff Bezos and, and these types of characters. Um, and it's really easy to forget that they went through a huge struggle at the beginning. And everybody goes through a huge struggle at the beginning. You want this amazing golden egg at the end of the, the tunnel. I mean, that's really what you think it's going to be like when you first jump in. And it's very, very difficult. So I think you need to have patience. And then the second thing that I have is you need to do what you do because you love to do it. And that needs to be enough. You're going to have successful periods and you're going to have unsuccessful periods to keep having the motivation to get out of bed every day and to work as hard as you have to work to, to start a company. It's just so important to love what you do or to find a way, an aspect of what you do to really love and dig into, because you're always going to have good and bad. It's always going to be a really difficult ride. So I think you have to find it within yourself and within what you're doing to uh, have motivation, despite the whirlwind that's um, inevitably going to be going off around you. Great advice right there. I think whether or not you're an entrepreneur or want to be an entrepreneur, or whoever you are, whatever you're doing out there. I think both of your pieces of advice speak volumes there. So thanks for sharing that. You know, as we think about where we spent a lot of our time looking towards the past and how you've gotten to where you are today, what does the future look for both of you personally, but also Vortec Watches? Sure. So start with the company. We realized last year during the pandemic, um, we really just honed in on what we're good at, which is we make one of a kind custom watches and we can't make very many of them. And for the longest time, especially me and, and Tyler alluded to some of the differences that we've had. One of the hard conversations that we've had over the years has been, 
I love marketing. I love sales. I want Tyler to give me more watches to sell. I want to sell thousands of watches a year, not hundreds. And just for reference, we do about 400 watches a year and we sell more than we can ever make. Um, and that's really cool, but also could be and can be uh, really frustrating, right? Is we want to grow and we're not sure how. And so we just decided we were forcing a, a square peg in a round hole and let's just do what we're good at and do only that. So Vortec Watch Company right now, we take pocket watches and turn them into wristwatches. We'll make about 400 watches this year. We do this really cool thing where we do a watch of the day and coming really soon, we're going to launch that again. So every day, Monday through Friday, we release one new one-of-a-kind watch for sale at 12 noon Mountain Time. And when it's sold, it's gone forever. It's your watch or somebody else's. And so we'll do about 200 watches like that this year. And then we have the military edition. And then, of course, we salvage other people's pocket watches and turn them into wristwatches. That's really what we do and what we're good at. And we're just going to keep doing that. And so Vortec Watch Company will keep doing that and only that. And then we're going to add a new company. We call it a sister company. And we're still working on the name of it and, and the branding and all that stuff. But the products will be fully modern. We'll do all things more traditionally, use a modern movement, modern everything. And that way we can make thousands of watches and scratch that itch and do both of those things, but all together. And it'll all be under the Vortec umbrella and our manufacturing, but it'll be a different brand. I knew you guys had something up your sleeve. I knew there was an <laughs> entrepreneurs are never stagnant. They never sit still. So I didn't know what the company was, but I knew that there had to be another idea there, which is certainly exciting. Yeah. And we really want to take on some of the original competitors that we had. And that tagline, America wasn't assembled. It was built. When we first came up with that, I was like, oh, it's a fun jab at Shinola, which is our largest competitor. And they assemble watches in Detroit great company employs hundreds of people, um, hundreds of American jobs, all wonderful things, but it's not totally made in America. And so, you know, it's really exciting to be able to go head to head with a company like that, who's well-established, has a great brand. We're going to get to compete in that same circle and, and we're going to make a really high quality product that's going to stand out from the other products that, you know, besides Shinola and one or two other places are mostly made outside of America. And so I think we can really solidify our position as like one of the true American watch companies. Well, we do know a, uh, a small little alumni group that should get behind what you guys are doing. <laughs> it's a very We're small all club. Exactly. <laughs> so, so speaking of alumni and Penn State, we're going to put you in the lion's den, which is a segment dedicated to your time at Penn State. So, guys, you, you walked us through your very impressive career building up Vortec watches. And first, I want to know, how did Penn State prepare you for all these great professional endeavors you've done in building up the company? Penn State was a lot of fun. I, unlike RT, didn't quite graduate. I spent three years at Penn State and then dropped out, actually. So I was studying math there, and it wasn't Penn State. I had a little bit of a different path in front of me, I think. I dropped out of college and, and took that path, but I would never trade it for anything. I learned so much about how to think, how to be a person, how to just get through life. And I obviously would have never met RT and made a ton of connections that I made there. So I'm really thankful for my time at Penn State. But yeah, my, my time at Penn State was a little bit shorter than RT's. 
and Tyler always gives me crap because I I spent five years at Penn State. Um, and as you mentioned, my my accolades or whatever you want to call them, my degree is quite long because I had two minors. But I also did a co-op down in Arkansas with Sam's Club, the baby brother of Walmart. And so I worked there for six months before I came back to, to Penn State and finished my last semester, which was mostly all my credits to finish my minors and stuff like that. And so, yeah, I did the victory lap and I'm super proud of it. And I'm really glad I did it. I would have stayed for six years. It was fun. I learned a lot in school. I got a, a great engineering degree. That's why I went there. It's in-state tuition for one of the best engineering degrees in the country. You really can't beat that. But like Tyler, I learned a lot of ancillary things. I, I think the, the, the things that inspired me to become an entrepreneur were from my entrepreneurship classes mostly because of the professors. So the professors that, that um, taught most of those entrepreneurship classes either were retired entrepreneurs or they ran a small business on the side. Even while they were a professor, they were running a business and they just had an immense amount of experience and they shared that with us as the students. And there was one project that sticks out to me uh, the most. And the professor on day one, he gave us all $5 and he said, okay, your team of five has to go start a business with $5. And the team that comes back with the most money in six weeks gets an A and then second place gets a B and third place gets a C and fourth place gets a D. And the point of it wasn't to start a business with $5. The $5 was just a shiny object. It's how do you make money from nothing? And that's what I think I learned bottom line from all of those courses is how do you just have an idea and what are the first couple steps from idea to, to company and how do you get started? And obviously Tyler and I have real world experience in that now, but that's the closest I think I got to that in, in school. Yeah, I was going to say that is straight on real world right there. Happening at Penn State. Love it. Toughest question of them all. Favorite memory at Penn State? I, I lost my mom uh, last year, and she she went to Penn State, too. She, she was the reason that, that I went. I, I believe she graduated in 71. And because I lost her recently, I think this is why this memory is coming back to me. But the day I graduated... My parents are divorced and they had been divorced since I was, I think, a junior in high school and, and they really didn't get together very often. But on that day, when I graduated from college, my parents were together and some of my other family was there and, and we walked around and we took pictures with the lion and we took pictures at graduation. And, you know, that for me is just a really great memory of, of my parents together as friends and as my parents supporting me graduating from college and then also of my mom and just how as a Penn Stater so freaking proud that I also graduated from our alma mater so that that's my favorite memory for me beautiful yeah and I, yeah mine is is not nearly as compelling as RT's um, <laughs> but the thing that comes to mind for me when I think of Penn State is not a specific memory. It's just walking to class, to my 8 a.m. classes in the morning, just through the beautiful campus at Penn State. I would go out and sit in the different parks around the campus a lot 
it's just such a peaceful time to throw your headphones in and take a half an hour walk or whatever it may be, depending on where you're living. Just it, it brings a lot of peace to my mind when I think about that period in my life of you just have a lot of focus on what you do. You're, you have a job. It's to be there and to learn and to have a lot of fun and grow as a person. But those mornings walking around Penn State campus or something I'll never forget for sure. That's the first time anyone has ever said that on this podcast, because most people would say if they're walking to class at 8 a.m., they're actually thinking, why did I schedule an 8 a.m. class? <laughs> why did I do this? Through? Yeah, but I'm, I'm a little bit of a morning person, I guess. Yeah. T- Tyler spun it into a positive and he said, oh, I love the morning and it's a peaceful time to be out in the belt. If you guys could go back and visit with the 18 year old version of yourself as a freshman, uh, what advice would you share? with yourself as you started your college career? Do your homework. <laughs> I, I say that kind of in a funny way, but it, in more of a way of just cross your eyes. I've always been a doer, kind of just get after it kind of person. Um, and no no specific mistakes maybe, but literally I should have done more of my homework and, and figuratively <laughs> do more of your homework, cross more. Tease dot more eyes and and be more prepared. <laughs> For me, I think I would advise to just remind myself to say no to things. I've said yes to like freaking everything in my whole life, and I've been trying to practice now um, saying no to things. I still say yes to most things, and I'm just constantly busy. I'm always doing something, and. We, we have Vortic and, and I, I spun off a marketing company out of Vortic that's now doing Vortex marketing. So my job is still the same, but I have a second company. I have two kids. Like I, I just, I have a lot and I've always had a lot. And I think that started in college where I just, I did two minors. Why did I, why? Well, that was just a, why? And I had a girlfriend all through college. So I also had that going. I had the, the college works painting job was um, my f- summer of freshman year. So I didn't really enjoy my my spring semester of freshman year because I was driving home to Reading every weekend to knock on doors and try to paint people's houses. And I did that freshman year. Like, I think I would advise myself just, I know you think you only have four years, but like, just FYI, you're going to be here for five. So you can go a little slower, take your time with these <laughs> things. That would have been really nice to hear. Thanks as well for saying yes to this podcast, at least. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah, no. Well, we always say they always say what all press is good press. So, I definitely say yes to all things media and social media, but this is fun. <laughs> Great. Two more questions for you and and one of them is along the advice lines as well. If someone's in Fort Collins coming in meeting you and they say, "Hey, I'm thinking about going to Penn State all the way from Colorado." What do you say to them? How do you convince them? For somebody that's in more of the technical field like I am, and which is funny because I didn't really study the technical field when I was at Penn State, but I got a lot of glimpses of it through RT because RT was an engineering student. I would say they have some of the best equipment in the world to to learn how to be proficient in the world of manufacturing. They've got 3D printing, they've got CNC machines, they've got some of the industry's leading experts if you want to be in manufacturing, you couldn't be at a much better place. Besides the fact that it's super fun and you can find something there. There's so many things to do that you can always find something. 
Yeah, I, I think my answer starts with the academics as well. And at least the, the first way to answer that, which is why I went. Obviously, in-state tuition, I, I saved a lot of money there. That's great. But if you're considering out-of-state tuition, if you're getting into engineering or, or even business, I mean, I, to my knowledge, I think the supply chain school is the best, like literally the best in the country. But if you look at engineering, I think there was 12 different types of engineering. And I started as a nuclear engineer, and then I switched to aerospace engineering. And at Calc 3, I gave up on aerospace engineering and switched to industrial engineering because I tried to switch from engineering to supply chain because I realized I really liked logistics and I wanted to go work for Walmart or Amazon. And they wouldn't let me. I would have done seven years if I switched to supply chain. But what the point I'm trying to make is it doesn't matter which engineering or which major you have in business or engineering. Penn State is like in the top 10 rankings for every single engineering that, that exists. And, and I don't know much about the business school and the other schools, but I'm sure it's the same way where it's within the top 10 or top 20 schools in the nation on almost everything. So it doesn't matter what major you pick. You're still at a fantastic school and perk if you switch you're still at one of the best schools. So it's a win-win. <laughs> Absolutely. Spot on. How do you guys feel most connected to the university these days? Before COVID, I, I actually had the opportunity to come back and speak to like the entrepreneur classes. And some of the professors asked me back. I mean, that was really cool. I felt really connected going back as an alumni and like talking to students. That was awesome. Gents, this has been a great time with you. I have to throw in a time whenever I can, right, with you guys. But <laughs> in, in all seriousness, the one downside about doing a podcast is you don't have the visuals. So everyone needs to go to vortickwatches.com. When I went to the site, beautiful watches. Seriously, it was hard for me to choose which one. Just amazing craftsmanship, amazing stories. Of course, you both are Penn Staters, so we love Vortic watches even more. But certainly wish you guys a lot of continued success, a lot of luck. Keep fighting the good fight. Whoever comes out uh, against you guys, we've got a lot of faith in you. And thanks for sharing your, your journey with us as well. Yeah, thank you guys so much for having us. Yeah, thanks, Jared. Thanks, Ross. Appreciate it. And we always end, end on one thing. We are Penn State. Penn State. <laughs> Lion Legacy is a Baruta production. If you enjoy this Labor of Love podcast, we'd certainly appreciate it if you would subscribe and write us a review on your favorite podcast platform.